Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. Joining me on the show today is Sean Lockyer, the director of Sean Lockyer Architects, a Brisbane-based practice focused exclusively on high-end residential work. Founded in 2009, the studio has grown to over 20 employees and has been published in every major Australian architecture publication. In this episode, Sean and I discuss the difficult and often uncomfortable relationship architects have with wealth, status, and commercial success. We looked at the psychology of high net worth residential clients, from their typical hobbies and interests to their priorities for their projects and what they look for in an architect they can trust and relate to. We discussed why a track record for adding financial value for clients can be an important driver of positive word of mouth and build trust and credibility with clients. We spoke about why Sean believes architects who show their personal passions, hobbies, interests and values are much more relatable and trustworthy in the eyes of potential residential clients. Sean shared his media strategy for new projects and why he prefers to reach a broad audience through digital publications and video channels like The Local Project rather than focusing on niche architectural magazines. And finally, we looked at why Sean believes that the best time to promote your practice is when you don't have the capacity to take on any more work and how that helps to convey a sense of confidence, objectivity and exclusivity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sean Lockyer from Sean Lockyer Architects. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Dave. Really appreciate being here. Looking forward to it. Uh, it's very exciting to uh, to meet you and to learn more about your studio. So as always, how about we start off with a little bit of a background uh, on the practice? How how many um, years have you been running the studio for and, and and what were you doing before you started your own practice? So um, I've been in practice, in my own practice, for 14 years. We're, we're in our 14th year. We are 22 staff in total, and we're Brisbane-based, but we are currently involved in work from far north Queensland uh, right down to Bruny Island, in fact. So most of our work covers the east coast of, of Australia, and while we've had a couple of inquiries a little bit further afield, we, um, for the most part, remain on the east coast of Australia. And all of our work to date has been in the single residential um, sort of sphere and predominantly in the higher end of that world, you know, recognizing architecture is an expensive endeavor, um, and certainly in Australia. You know, so our clients are, you know, generally pretty affluent people looking to build aspirational homes. Yeah. Give me the rundown on the clients. Can we start there just in terms of talking about kind of the typical Sean Lockyer architects? Uh, client, that aspirational client, like what's their story? <laughs> give me the give me the profile. You know, one of the great privileges about doing this job is that you meet the most extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily diverse and interesting, and um, you know, polarizing groups of people you could possibly imagine. I think you know it's often been asked of us that do we have a typical client, and the answer would very definitely be no to that. What, what I've tried to do is to sort of find a place where we, we tell every aspirant client or any potential client what we understand to be our truth about working in the world of architecture, the procurement method, costs, process, you know, our value in the process, who we are as humans, and with the hope that what is authentic and 
real resonates with the right client for us. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you might have somebody that's an introverted, extroverted, you know, family member, single person, um, straight couple, a gay couple, of every imaginable diversity. If, if they resonate with, or if our story resonates with them, we see them as our next client. You know, we're not in the business of trying to bully people into working with us. And it's really, really important that people just feel that um, they can trust us and that they want to work with us um, you know, in order for this to be a successful process. Yeah. Talking about the story resonating with them, which, what sort of aspect of it do you think resonates with them? Because that's always something that architects struggle with is, or, you know, the industry as a whole, we kind of think about what are the things that the general public are sort of interested in and clients are interested in. And sometimes yeah. we're in our own bubble and we can't really tell what other people will be into from the <laughs> yeah. outside. So yeah, what, what have you found kind of yeah. sort of resonates and, and sticks out for them? Well, I mean, I think look, look, that's, a, that's a very good question because I think this is going to sound weird coming from an architect. Go for it. The mistake I think most architects make in being accessible and being, being in a place where clients can win or so where clients can feel confidence in an architect is for architects to avoid being architects, you know, because architects love preaching to themselves. They love preaching to the choir. You know, their, their best audience uh, are their, you know, colleagues and their fellow believers. But our clients are very rarely those people. You know, our clients are moms and dads and you know, single people and couples and you know, families who um, have, you know, all the fears and anxieties and unknowns of any other human being, and they come into a process that is fraught with unknown and cost anxiety and a legacy of, you know, lots of bad stories, and they come into it with enormously high anxiety. So the more we can resist selling them on the architectural dream and the more we can focus on putting their minds at ease about the kinds of things that really matter to them, you know, their how the house will address their functional needs and, you know, not just be a kind of totem to the architect's own ego, you know, how we can tangibly and robustly guide them through the understanding of cost and process and approvals and all those sorts of things. And the more we can demystify the act of building and the more we can put their minds at ease about all those things that they've heard so many horror stories about, um, usually the quicker and the happier the, the quicker they get to a point of happiness and peace of mind and the happier they will be. And once you've set up a robust mechanism for guiding them through all of that, then, of course, you know, the opportunities and, and the excitement of architecture and the passion that um, is certainly implicit in all of our work, you know, can flow and, you know, um, you can get into a much more aspirational space. But I, I think the biggest mistake that has been made historically is, is that we talk to clients about what interests us instead of communicating to them about uh, what is important to them. It's mm, interesting, isn't it? I, I hear that a f- kind of a fair bit. Now, I'm guilty of having guests on the podcast that I think are probably more the architects' architects. You know, like yeah, yeah. they, I like them, so I bring them on the podcast, and, <laughs> and I, I probably like them too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You like them as well. I like them. Yeah. The guests like them, and we're all very yeah. happy with each other. But you know, there isn't. Uh, I think uh, part of the way that I'm trying to achieve balance is mm. by you know always making sure that we're looking at the other side, which is kind of like where I came from starting out thinking about marketing and communications for architects, mm. I was very much the forget about the other architects. Let's talk about the clients kind of guy yeah. and then kind of shifted a little bit back and forth over time. But um, 
but yeah, it's 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 interesting because I guess one of the things or the doubts that people have in their mind or what what a lot of architects are focusing on is thinking about oh, I just, I really want to do really good work that mm-hmm. like interests me and is exciting to me and is kind of like these other architects that I'm looking at that I'm inspired by and these projects that I see around the world or I visit and things like that. But there's this sort of I guess do we call that like is that kind of egotistical or is that sort of just creatively kind of yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're, I think one thing that makes your studio so special is that you're you're sort of in both camps. You're in architecture yeah. world and you're in normal society world as well, yeah. which is yeah. so, what, so no. what, how do you sort no, of see no. the balance there? Look, I, I think that's a very astute observation. And I think, you know, it, it um, and the observation in itself is kind of shrouded with the potential of what any of those things could mean because, you know, there is the architect's architect and, I, and I'm a massive fan. I'm a total archie nerd. So some of the most inspired work that motivates me and um, you know, gives me creative inspiration is stuff that I wouldn't necessarily do myself or for a client. And I think you can distinguish between the creative act and you know, you know the, the creative endeavor and all the sort of aspirational things that we as architects want to do. And, and then, of course, trying to reconcile those with a client whose agenda and whose interests should be more important than yours. And I think where the sort of pendulum swings from one side to the other, and, you know, everyone's heard the stories of Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, writing a letter to Mr. Kaufman because he questioned him on the cantilever falling water. And Frank Lloyd Wright famously wrote back and said, clearly our relationship has broken down. You don't trust me anymore. There's no point in us working together, you know. And somewhere between that and being amenable to working with a client and understanding, you know, what's important to them is, is has been the historical tension that has always existed or has always appeared to exist between architects and and clients. So for us, uh, you know, all of those things still matter every bit as much as they may do to any other, um, you know, let's call them the architect's architect. And, uh, but I I think we have, and I don't think we're unique in this regard, by the way, but in terms of my own values, we have a word in our fee proposal that is incredibly corny but it's incredibly meaningful to us. And that is that we want a happy project. As as absolutely banal and basic an aspiration that is, that is our primary KPI. And that doesn't mean that we don't want superb architecture and that we don't want to push the limits of uh, the qualitative aspirations and creative aspirations that uh, is implicit in a process like this, but not at the cost of our clients' well-being. And... There is, there is no project, there's no architectural outcome that I would ever pursue that will ever justify having a perennially unhappy client. Never. We will not do it. It will never happen um, because I'll capitulate before that. I, 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 would, I would defer to the client's um, well-being and their happiness before, um, you know, the desire to kind of pursue my own egotistical aspirations, you know, prevails. And, and that once again, that doesn't mean that we don't at times have, have frustrations about that tension. It doesn't mean that we don't at times feel um, disappointed that something that we envisaged didn't, wasn't realized in its totally perfect form. But it, it remains something that, you know, 35 years on in this career, um, if you said to me, if I, if I landed up in a sickbed tomorrow and, you know, days to live and you said to me, what is the single most redeeming you know, legacy you feel you have as an architect, I would say that I treated people nicely uh, and that 
um, people actually felt like we were decent human beings. And to some degree, we changed the narrative a little bit about how clients and builders and architects work together. You know, I, I think that has been a strength of ours at the risk of, you know, being overly confident. And it's something that there have been very few, I'll go so far as to say, no incidences of clients walking away because they're so unhappy or frustrated or angry with us. So, you know, it's definitely been something that's underpinned not only, I think, this, the success of our relationships, but I'd like to think the success of our work. Because ultimately, if you can show a client that, that you do care and you can be authentic about that, there will come a point where a client will even rethink how much freedom they give you. And, and, and we've got as many examples of clients that maybe started with high anxiety and maybe didn't trust us to the degree that we would have hoped that by the end of the job, um, recognize that what we were doing was generally in their best interests. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's a really like the master diplomat really because, I, I mean, you could imagine a version of it where you, I love the, using the term capitulate and, and a couple of a couple mm. of other words there where I can imagine that there's there's plenty of practices where that is their first priority would be, you know, the kind of the happiness and satisfaction of the client and, yeah. and that's yeah. what they're kind of doing. But it wouldn't quite work out quite as well in terms of sort of architectural success and also potentially commercial success. And likewise, there's, there's architects that are absolute dogmatic purists who get absolutely <laughs> nowhere, right? Because... <laughs> There's these extremes of the of the kind of the spectrum there, and I think that it's risky being out on the edges, and you yeah. kind of have to be somewhere in the middle, and uh, or, or slightly, probably seventy percent client, thirty percent architect, or something. There's some position there that that is yeah. is best, and then maybe individual projects, as you're saying, you might start them kind of seventy thirty, but then as you build that trust with the client, you can move closer to fifty fifty or <laughs> or yeah. whatever. No, no, I I, th I think that's well. Once again, I think that's very astute. I mean, I think. I mean, what has been so interesting in the, the journey about meeting a client, deciding that um, this is something that you want to do together, getting into the process, building the house and ultimately living in the house. There's so many moving parts in that process and in the relationships and in the understanding of the relationships that there's a part of it that kind of evolves and people sort of find their feet. Like in any you know relationship, if you started dating somebody, you know, you'd be dating them for a couple of months before you realize that they snore or, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, architecture is a bit like that, you know, so you're starting in a situation where some people will come in with just completely open hearts and trusting and, you know, that they've, and maybe life has been kind to them where they come in with this, beautifully kind of open sense of what could be and, and they don't have any fear in the world and then other clients have either had cause you know to come into these things with concern or process hasn't worked out and and then you know you know at the risk of drawing parallels you know it's like um so it's, it's the difference between getting a you know beautifully pedigreed um pet that comes beautifully conditioned and you know behaves and does things in a certain way that's you know beautiful and poetic and you know everyone look marvels at it and then you know the other instance instances where you know beautiful animals have been hurt and you know they behave and then you've got to win their trust and but but that sort of sense of people's inherent desire to want to feel connection to feel authenticity to feel both supported cared for heard all that those are unique to those are not unique to anyone i think those are inherent in every single person but how they play out is through personality and ego and what is interesting in our journey which for me i'm, I'm going to say is that the bigger 
picture, the 35-year journey, is that when you start out as an architect where you've got very little credible work or credible portfolio, you know, you, you're selling, you well and truly are selling the dream because you're selling your personality because it's all you've got to go with. And then you get some runs on the board with projects and stuff, and then the projects um, have a certain personality to them themselves. And, and with the blessing of clients, some of these things get promoted you know, very well. And, you, you know, then people start to understand your personality in relationship to a body of work. And then the pendulum starts to swing where you go from trying to sell yourself and go, look at me, I you know, have these skills and you know, I think I'm a decent human and I you know, draw well and I do these things. To people going, oh, we know you do all of those things. I mean, like history, you don't need to tell us. You know, that's a that's a given. Um, we're really interested in this job. So you're starting at a much higher order of dialogue, of conversation, of level of trust, because straight away people are coming to you with an expectation and an understanding that you're capable of all these things that maybe they didn't know before. The, and, and this is really the interesting and, and beautifully serendipitous, but at times slightly ironically frustrating as well, is that um, you kind of have to prove yourself a little bit on every job again to, and, and I get that, it's not a judgment, by the way, um, but it, 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 in the act of, of doing that, you know, what by the time I think clients realise that our hearts are in a, in a good place and that we really do want the best for them and that, our understanding is holistic about the entire process. Once again, the pendulum swings into them maybe second-guessing us at times um, just because it's the nature of the uncertainty that comes with this process to a point where they realise that the outcome that they actually aspired to, we hold and we hold it preciously and dearly and their best chance of actually getting there is with us and with our guidance as opposed to despite us. And to get to the point where you do these things with the clients and with their blessing and with their confidence, you know, it takes a lifetime. I mean, I'm 52 and I can honestly say, I mean, I've worked 70 hour weeks for 35 years of my life. So I'm probably worked till the age of 65 already. And it's taken me to 50 to get to a point where I think overwhelmingly people have that confidence in us, which is obviously They're starting to feel confident in you. Privilege. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. It's it, it's interesting, like you know, you're talking about that that evolution from you as the sort of sell the architect, just standing out there going, "I'm me. I've got these big ideas. Somebody give me some work to do." To then the portfolio um, having its own personality or showcasing your personality or bringing that out, which is really nice. And then eventually that confidence starts to build. I think you know people think about how do I get to that confident place where the clients that are coming to me are coming to me because of who I am and what I've done and they there's that implicit trust that they have in me. And the way you've described it there is that it feels like it kind of comes through the release of the work, which is how I would kind of usually think about it. Yeah. And, and with that, I'd also say there's this other goal that people have that I want to work on bigger projects, more expensive projects, you know, $3 million houses rather than $300,000 additions or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And they see the work and the work expressing itself out there and being promoted as the way to do that. And that's how I would normally see it. But do you do you think that moving upwards in terms of client trust and that financial trust in terms of the size of those projects, is that something that you see as primarily happening through projects becoming notorious out there in the market and seen? Or is that coming through word of mouth? It's repeat clients coming back for their second house. It's 
it's these kinds of um, it's this very specific local network that yeah, yeah. is building around the business. I'm I'm guessing that that's yeah. probably more for you. Yeah, no, there's there's a bit of everything. I mean, I think there is probably um, if anyone is doing anything reasonably well and you are tr- treating the people that you're doing it with with respect, I think there is. You, you would need to be an extraordinarily measured personality to never let it grow a little bit. You know, it sort of it develops a kind of it develops its own momentum as a function of the fact that you've got runs on the board, you've got a volume of work that you're lucky enough to sustain, and then you, you know, I, I often joke with clients, and I mean it's joked with affection, um, but truth as well is that what gets seen cannot be unseen. So what we often joke about is that our next project is almost certainly has the capacity to kind of build on what has been proven and done and seen before. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a very well publicized project in ours called uh, Witter Circle, um, which is a probably our most celebrated project, um, which is a house up in Noosa for some amazing clients, Craig and Ali. And w- we had a extraordinary time on that project. You know, Craig was a client who was happy to push us and he, he pushed us to get the best out of us. Um, you know, Ali was wonderfully gentle and kind and, and supportive to the whole process. And, and I consider them good friends now. And, uh, you know, they, they had both the, the bandwidth um, and the vision, but also the confidence in us to go, look, we're going to push this just that bit further than you've ever gone before. You know, and the house stands in testament to their support, um, you know, the, the, the bandwidth that they, they're privileged enough to have and the body of work that came before that gave them the confidence to get us there in the first place. And now that that home is built, um, apart from, you know, being something we're very, very proud of, um, you know, every, almost every client that comes to us these days refers to that project. Almost every single client refers to that project and goes like, my God, this thing is just so beautiful, you know, and, and obviously not just myself. I mean, it's guys involved in the project, Mark Conlon did the landscaping, you know, Jason Warren who built it, um, engineers and um, Hong who did the interiors um, but what, what, what you do see is is once you start getting those bigger runs on the board then you know the, the, you're more confident and, and comfortable in themselves clients almost come to you and go look what is the next level you know <laughs> like where do we go to now if you had the freedom you know where would that have gone you know where and I think that is what is really exciting and, and really motivating um at this point in in my career is that we're getting these extraordinary clients that, you know, once again, you know, there's no way to beat around the bush that have the economic bandwidth to go, look, these things have resonated with us. We have the confidence in you. Um, Let's see where this can go. And I I think there have been a number of milestone projects in my journey. There was a Balaam house at the Balaam house done for Don O'Rourke nearly 20 years ago. Just probably the first real major milestone project. I've gone on to do five projects with Don, his family. And then there was the, the Wybalena house, which was in Brookfield. That is sort of the catalyst at the beginning of my firm. And then we did the V house in um, the Sunshine Coast for Lorna and Chris, which was an extraordinary project. And then from that, we got the Mossman house in Sydney. And then once, you know, once a Brisbane architect starts flexing their wings outside of Brisbane, not only do the people in Sydney pay attention, but then the people in Brisbane go, wow, like cheap as these guys are doing work in Sydney, they must be that good. Now, whether that's real or not, whether that's substantial or not, doesn't matter. It is absolutely unequivocally the evidence that we've experienced. 
Um, you know, and and ultimately, I, th- I think on a fundamental level, um, an architect's job is about winning a client's confidence because with their confidence, you will have greater freedom, you will have greater opportunity, you will have greater responsibility, of course, as well. But your creative endeavours and your ability to push the envelope further just go that much further with them on your side, you know. And and I think that's where we are humbled, privileged, and incredibly excited to be in that space now where more is the case that that is our client than isn't. Yeah. How good is it if you've got a client who who wants to sort of take it to the next level with you guys as well, you know, who sees that project and goes, let's, let's you know, let's raise the stakes on this one. Oh, That's pretty absolutely. amazing. No, it, it is extraordinary. And, and look, it's, it's probably worth saying, you know, uh, and I, I find myself kind of defensive about this at times because there is probably a natural and, and not not inaccurate assessment of the fact that because we're working towards a sort of pointy end of the economic food chain, we all work with wealthy clients and we work with big budgets, but that doesn't diminish our sense of responsibility, accountability and yep. aspirations to do what we are doing as sustainably as possible. Now, of yep. course, you know, we're not building, you know, 120 square meter hemp houses, you know, on, on acreage that are off grid. We're building, you know, extremely luxury homes built with the most beautiful finishes and city blocks. So it, it's not a sustainable uh, model in a in a you know in the traditional sense of the word, but that doesn't mean that we're not applying resources as responsibly as we can, interrogating the nature of the spaces that clients are asking us for to make sure that we don't build more than we have to, being intelligent about how the house is composed, that we don't embody complexity and cost where it's not required. So we still take our responsibility of being intelligent, economical, resourceful. Yeah. Albeit we are doing that with wealthier clients on on bigger budgets. And if the conversation makes anything, many of this sound irresponsible, people can blame me. Don't blame, don't blame Sean. I'm the one that's making him talk about <laughs> the pointy end clients. He's the one that wants to talk about the responsibility, and yeah. I'm just going to talk about how cool are these, uh, how cool are these amazing houses for these pretty aspirational clients, which I think is kind of the part that I'm sort of, you know, most interested in. In terms of those clients, I guess coming back to kind of the profile of that client again, because you. You talked about them. They're not. They're not the architecture fanatics, right? Like that's an important no. thing to sort of think about. They're not. They're not. You know, necessarily flipping through a copy of Houses magazine or El Croqui in their free time. They're. They're kind of. That's not their bag necessarily. No, I'd agree and with that. In many cases, and I, I talk to the clients of my clients. You know, the people that engage the architects that I work with, and the the most amazing, brilliant clients who commission fantastic houses, beautiful award winning houses. But I'll talk to them about, you know, what, how do you engage with architecture? Where, where do you kind of um, find out about architecture from? And I come at it with all these assumptions that it must be, you know, must mm. have seen my client in Vogue or something like that. And um, no, they just looked on Google, you know, they were just looking in the other area. They, <laughs> yeah. they hadn't heard of any other architects before. You know, that sort of thing comes, all, comes along all the time. And as yeah. a marketing guy, I'm always aghast. I can't believe it. They're, they're, they're not informed about what all these architects are up to, but um, that's just the reality of it. Even the very best clients are sometimes not coming at it as the architecture experts necessarily. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. You're talking about um, building that confidence and almost sort of in, in a lot of cases, kind of introducing them to architecture a little bit, right? Yeah. In, in, in certain ways as, as, the pro- as the project and the process develops, that that starts to I guess, become something that they become a bit more immersed in on, on yeah. occasionally. 
I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, the, the interesting thing, and I mean, our clients are very informed, you know, it's rare, particularly these days, that we, we're doing a house for a client that either hasn't in some shape or form and done it before. And oh, wait, so, can we just quickly touch on yeah. that? Sorry to cut you off. Yeah. That's interesting. So the clients that you're working with these days have generally had past experience they've done a house in the past something like Over, that overwhelmingly no that wouldn't have obviously always been the case no but, but now um, that's interesting given the you know the sort of size and nature of the projects that we're doing by and large i would certainly say that um, i mean they're or, not or first home buyers no no, no i mean or, or definitely not <laughs> they're not <laughs> they haven't come not. with the, unless the, the bank of mum and dad has no. come along and helped them yeah. but, no, um, no, def- but yeah, definitely no. not but, but I, I, th- I think, um, you, you know, the, the, this question is, has often um, been asked of me and I, I think um, I'm fairly unapologetic about the way that I answer it is that, you know, in my assessment of things, and I've been lucky enough to kind of um, work with some extraordinarily um, accomplished and wealthy people and very, very successful people in all walks of life in, you know, two continents I worked at. Sayota in South Africa, um, which is Stefan Anthony, owns Doctrine Architects, who arguably in the world would be the most prolific um, house architects, mm. having built houses in 76 countries in the world. And one, one of the things that I learned very early on, and all credit to Stefan, is that, you know, the, the people that want the good things in life, and again, I'm talking, I, I'm, po- I'm polarizing the issue here for the purposes of this conversation, but when you look at the aspirational things in life, be it architecture, it's not uncommon for that to align with people's interests in art, wine, watches, um, you know, motor cars, all those sorts of things. And a number of those things I have, you know, in, interests and passions in myself. Um, you 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 go from you know the the kind of pure nerd on any of those sorts of things might not actually have the resources for any of them and maybe deadly interested in them, but like the 17-year-old with a camera at Cars and Coffee, you know, with a camera looking at the Lamborghini Aventador going past, but they have no ability to buy one. And they'll know every every little detail of the car, like every single piece. And they'll they'll know um, what the LP560-4 all means and stuff. And then you'll get the person that owns the LP560-4 and doesn't know what any of those things means, but they just enjoy the car because... They have the luck, the, luck, the luck and privilege and joy to look at these things from an aspirational point of view, not necessarily from a technical kind of hobby perspective. And the same thing is, is uh, you know, about art is that, I mean, I've, I've some of um, the most wonderful clients, we have some of the most extraordinary art collections. And for better or for worse, you know, and some of them aren't, some, not certainly not all, but some of them, when I've asked them, you know, about a particular artist or said, you know, this is a, you know, Brett Whiteley or whatever it is, and they went, oh, I can't remember the name of the artist. Now, there's something kind of beautifully oxymoronic, ironic about a person that doesn't know that they've got a Brett Whiteley on the wall. You know, on the one hand, you could say that's, you know, an arrogant person might say, well, that's ignorance because they should. It's that valuable or whatever. But there's something quite poetically beautiful about the fact that they just see it for a beautiful painting and they have the means and they have the luxury to have afforded it or have inherited it or whatever, but they just see it as a beautiful painting, not because it's a Brett Whiteley, but just because it's a beautiful painting. And in the same way, I think I, I'm actually proud of the fact that our clients engage with the architecture. We talk about, but we talk about it from the functional perspective, from the poetic perspective, as a way of it serving their aspirational 
part of their life. You know, now the degree that we do that well or badly is, I suppose, ultimately for them to decide. But if if our track record is anything to go by, I think we've been successful in narrowing that gap between making architect demystifying architecture. When I say packaging it up, I'm not trying to commoditize what we do far from it, but we, we understand because this is all we do, we've been successful in being able to say to people, look, these are the things you're going to need to be careful about. These are the constraints. These are the things that can make something go from point A to point B. And if you listen to us and you do all these things, you will have a beautiful home and there will be a place to charge your iPad and a place to kick off your shoes and you know, washing line that does all the right things and multiple dishwashers. And we're not going to judge you for wanting a big TV in your living room. And if you want another TV in your other living room, we're also not going to judge you for that. And if you want a snooker room because you're lucky enough to afford one and you like snooker, we're also not going to judge you for that. And if, you, if you've got a watch collection and we need a, a design safe set can be put away and you've got a million dollars worth of watches, we're also not going to judge you for that. Nor your car collection, nor your art collection, nor where you spend your holidays in summer. You know, we, we I mean, the people that are privileged enough to do this have worked incredibly hard. They're incredibly decent people. There's, there's not a client that we have that's not a, you know, decent human being with the same cares and woes and fears as any of other clients. The fact that they're wealthy doesn't mean that they deserve people's judgment. You know, um, we are there to serve them and to do the best possible job that we can. And the, the fact that they're wealthy affords us the privilege of doing things creatively that maybe otherwise we'd never ever get to do. Yeah, absolutely. I oh, know it's it's very interesting, Sean. I, I try to look at this sort of dispassionately as a as somebody who's just trying to understand the different segments in the market and how they tick, like without again, as you said, sort of said, like not not judging mm. the architecture community sometimes has this issue. Oh, I'm, I'm not judging them for that, but they it's an obstacle for their business and the success of their practices. Where I think a lot of architects will recognise that you know there's a there's a lot of people in society that are kind of are uh, 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 because they don't have the resources are sort of quite alien from the architecture world and that's a problem yeah. that's recognized or something that people yeah. see and they go you know we are kind of we are out of touch with the big segment of society due to sort of how exclusive it is to work with an architect to design a home a million dollar home in melbourne or five million dollars yeah. you know whatever yeah. it's expensive but likewise i also think that architects because of their own Oftentimes, residential architects, they want to work with those more affluent, high net worth or ultra high net worth clients, yeah. but they struggle with the fact that they probably personally judge that sort of level of wealth. They have, they have yeah. an issue with it or they have an issue with the art collection or the possessions or the car collecting or whatever. It's very alien to them because it's, it's a, they're looking at it from the outside and going, I'm not part of that scene. I'm not yeah. part of that yeah. level of society. And so I, I think kind of negatively about it. I don't associate with it. It's not part of my personal values, but yeah. it certainly becomes an issue where at a certain level of wealth and net worth in a household, mm. you start to surpass all these architects where they no longer associate with, with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it becomes a bit of an issue where, and the reason, and you see it in a lot of in the cities in Australia where you see the 10, 15, $20 million houses. And, and oftentimes, you know, they're not, they're not being designed by the architects that we know about no, and hear about. No, they're no, this, they're this completely different category of architects that are the people that love and accept the high net worth client and understand yeah. them and relate to them. And yeah, there's a lot of architects that I think almost choose to sort of, I, I, I don't know if they're consciously choosing it. That's the thing I guess yeah. I'm getting at. I think they sort yeah. of, 
they just have a, a sort of a resignation about that sort of lifestyle. And then that ends up kind of limiting where they can kind of go with their practice, even though they aspire to work on these bigger kind of yeah. key projects. But yeah, I don't know, no, is there something is there something in that maybe? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's important to say that none of, um, you know, all of our journeys are our own. And, you know, all of, I don't think any of them should be judged. You know, they're, like uh, there, there's, I mean, we, we've done smaller projects that we've adored doing. You know, let me categorically say that um, a client's wealth has never been and will never be a criteria for us taking on project. It, it's about us telling clients if they want a certain thing, what it costs. And if they want more of it, then it's going to cost more. And then, I mean, they they will decide whether they can afford it or not. It's, it's a, none of our concern or, or businesses to whether or not they have the means to do it. Our concern is to give them objective, real information. And I, w- I would love for somebody to come to me and say, listen, I want to do a one-and-a-half-bedroom house, and uh, we'd happily do it, but it's not going to cost $100,000. You know, the thing is, is when you do these things to a certain quality on a small scale, they cost a fortune. So it almost becomes more exclusive because – the person that's only building one bedroom house will end up spending so much more on it that they could probably go and build a five bedroom house with somebody else, you know? So I, I, th- I think to, um, in terms of sort of defining one's own destiny, uh, I mean, you know, all, all we've ever sort of tried to say is that we want to do the, whatever projects that come to us to the best of our abilities, um, you know, with a great outcome with a client. And there has been a trajectory that has sort of um, elevated us to do bigger budgets, you know, for more, and wealthy clients, but that certainly doesn't mean that we wouldn't do the alternative. And I think the opposite is also true is, is that, I mean, some of my favorite architects, um, you know, and people that I revere enormously, um, you know, the Rick Laplastres, you know, the, the Glenn Merkitts of the world, you know, they have famously said they would never do a house, um, you know, over, I think it was 200 square meters or 120 square meters, because they said, you know, their value system is such that they just don't believe in need anymore. I, I respect them enormously for that. And the world is a better place for the fact that there are architects that have that resolve and, you know, and, and believe that that's how they want to kind of, you know, choose their work and stuff because it's yielded some of the most poetic and beautiful projects. But equally, and if somebody comes to me and they say, look, we want to do something of some magnitude, I, I would much rather that I applied my skills to it. And if I can, you know, be confident for a moment, you know, we believe that we are proud in the work that we do. You know, we believe that we will do the resources that they put into that home justice. And I would much rather be the person that's doing these bigger homes and doing these, you know, wonderful briefs to a very high standard than clients bypassing architects because they've decided yeah. that their value system oh, doesn't exactly. extend to them and getting, you know, people perhaps without the skills to go and uh, apply those resources in a way that doesn't yield an outcome that's of an um, equal or better um, outcome. No, you're so right. That's one way to look at it. I suppose it's kind of, I think people tend to associate a certain sort of architectural tastelessness with large budget or, or, yeah. or high, high, like high net worth clients, because that's typically who designs their houses, I think, <laughs> you know, well, yeah. or, or yeah. Who, who's working with them. But it's like kind of going, but the question is, well, but what if, you know, but what if good architects are doing it? <laughs> what, is, yeah. what does that do if that alternative is there and that's something that potentially improves and something that that client might be looking for? But, well, I mean, I think also, you know, one thing that has um, been long overdue, but, you know, thankfully, I think is more and more prevalent is, is that, 
at, at its most fundamental level, what I think every architect is, or any architect worth their salt is trying to do is to demonstrate the value of design, you know, to demonstrate the impact on people's lives and the quality of, you know, the environment by applying these resources in a way that's more intelligent than maybe it has done, been done at yeah. times before. And, um, you know, we go about that as best as we can. But I think, you know, and, and again, it's, you know, we, we, we kind of in a marketing forum here, if I can you know, yeah. encapsulate it like that um, for a moment. I, I think you would be a fool to deny the fact that, um, you know, how does the expression go, money talks and bullshit walks. The thing is, is the quickest way for people to properly understand the value of design in a way that the world, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes, values it is for it to be valuable financially you know yeah. and um while it has never been the aspiration of any of our work recognizing we don't do any speculative work we only do houses for moms and dads and families and stuff yeah and over the years you know with the enormous support and interest of you know some wonderful real estate agents that you know have sort of been close to us in our journey I think from memory, I'll stand to correction on this, but I think there are about 20, 22 or 23 houses that we've done that have gone to market over the years. And in the 14 years that I've been doing this, I think they've averaged somewhere near 32 or 33% return after people have sold them. Now, let me categorically Huge. say that that is not an aspiration of the clients, yeah. but because these homes were done properly and they were attractive to other people and they ticked, I, I hate this expression, tick boxes, but they, they ticked boxes for you know other aspirant clients where they didn't want to go through the three or four years and uncertainty of buying the process and it was there for them you know to see an yeah. experience and purchase in the first instance that yielded extraordinary real estate returns and again i don't mean to sound arrogant about that i mean that's just a fact it is an absolutely no it's a very interesting fact, fact. it's and, an interesting and and is, overlooked yeah, and, and, and when that reality kind of you know sort of makes its way into the market you know by osmosis or whatever it, it does two things. The one is is that uh, the people that are anxious about overcapitalizing or or going the, the sort of you know aspiring to these things and seeing it as something that is potentially a financial disaster, it puts their mind at ease about the fact that things done well overwhelmingly yep. will be an asset. Yeah. Um, and then at times, obviously, the 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 bad byproduct about that is is that maybe people then sort of take the act of designing a house as a money-making kind of endeavor, which again, I mean, you can't begrudge anybody doing that, yeah. but it is a different pursuit to what, you know, we, we overwhelmingly experience with the people that we're doing the houses with. So we just set about doing it as well as possible. And I think, you know, we, we, we live in a society and again, you know, I don't mean to sound arrogant about this or, you know, kind of cocky about it, but you know, if, if, if you want a Birkin bag, you don't go into the shop and buy a Birkin bag, you, you, you apply and you wait and you dream and you hope and you, you know, one day you you hope, irrespective of your money, to, the money you might have to buy one, you can't just walk into a shop and get one. You know, if you want to go and buy a Rolex, you don't walk into Rolex and buy a Rolex. You, you, you dream about being able to buy one at retail or you pay twice the price secondhand. You know, the same thing can be said about a, you know, Ferrari, you know, F12 or, you know, Lamborghini Aventador or, you know, Porsche or whatever is the, the, the things of high quality, certainly in the current culture, that are valued as being um, high quality, beautifully executed, things of design and um, quality that endure, 
history is showing that there's a value attached to those things. And what it, and the, the really good part about that from an architect's perspective is, is that architects have the potential to go from being seen as a cost to being seen as a value add. And as banal and as um, basic as that idea might be, the proof of the pudding is in the eating because it has been an enormous part of what has underpinned the success of our practices that people have seen the value in that design but then transacted. Yeah, and you have to believe it yourself before clients are going to believe it, right? Like yeah, you have yeah. to, you have to, you have to know, you have to be confident. That gives you that confidence to not, you know, when you're sending that fee proposal or you're proposing that extra thing that you're going to try and talk to the client about doing, you know, you're doing it from a place of they're making an investment they're they're, yeah. they're going to be better off because of it. Um, and you, you start seeing it differently and then that affects how you communicate, how you have that conversation. I can imagine. No, no absolutely. And, and, and look, it's, it's, it's worth saying that, I mean, I actually, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, when, when this is, people will be laughing in the background or writing um, comments when I say this, but I'm, I'm actually inherently a reasonably, I, mean, I wouldn't say I'm insecure, but I, I, have, enough, I have enough doubts about um, things to not be cavalier in saying, oh, this will happen or that will happen or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, tell, I tend to tell a lot of anecdotes, you know, when we meet new clients as a way of sort of paralleling stories and yeah. um, experiences and things like that. And um, I, I am very analytical. I'm reasonably mathematical. So I'm a massive advocate of going, what are the patterns that we see? You know, forget my opinion for a moment. What, what is the documented evidence of how these things will play? And let's focus on the facts. Let's focus on the mathematics. And that will get us to a point of certainty where all the much more aspirational, creative things that architecture wants to be can start to happen. You know, and creating that sort of solid foundation of trust through demonstrated experience and, um, you know, analysis, I think has stood us in very good stead. Yep. Yeah. I think always on the podcast, this, the theme that, theme that comes up is that, you know, we all want to be able to do great design and great projects and that's what our clients want as well. But the conditions have to be right for that to happen. There has to be, the context has to be right. The client has to be on board. They have to be confident. The architect has to be confident. Like everybody has to, there's a lot of people that have to be on the, like be in the right position to enable a project to do that special thing that not every project gets to do. Absolutely. so, so there's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can create those conditions. And I think that's uh, in your case, there's some interesting interesting examples that come up that haven't been raised elsewhere. I mean, you're talking about, and a note that I had down from our last conversation, going back to that point about the real estate mm-hmm. agents was um, financial value drives word of mouth. And I, no one's ever said that to me before or brought that up with me before this idea of like, you know, you're talking about the kind of the Rolex aftermarket resale. Yeah. Um, but, you know, recently Architeam in Victoria did that did that research project on looking at how they were comparing capital gains between architect design projects and non-architect design projects. And they were, yeah. they made a great case about the difference or the different kind of compounding effect of, of an architectural design project. So, so you're kind of paying close attention to it, acknowledging it, but the idea has maybe caught on as, you know, a Sean Lockyer design house does well. It, it sells well. It gets interest. It's something that real yeah. estate agents feel confident that it's going to get a good price and all that sort of stuff. So it's become yeah. like, has it become like kind of the, the local, the, the sort of the word around town now after after that many properties have kind of been successful in that resale? I'd like to think we, you know, one of many that, you know, have demonstrated success in this area. And I mean, I, I think, you know, being an architect, historically, um, 
you know, I mean, also I'm born in South Africa, so, you know, there's probably a bluntness or maybe a directness at times about what the way I message things that maybe is more subtly yeah. handled here by most. But I, I, I also think that there's a, there's a danger in our attempt and our desire and in our aspiration, that sort of warm and fuzzy part where we want something to be a certain way because of, you know, a whole lot of yeah. things, reasons that doesn't adequately acknowledge other major forces at play, you know, and I think, um, you know, in architecture, in residential architecture, maybe even in, in the industry of architecture, even in the teaching of architecture, there's unfortunately this legacy of um, architects being victims, you know, they're like, and, and there, there are Instagram sites about it called Archie Victim and Archie, you know, and all this sort of stuff about all these sort of, you know, memes and little videos and stuff about architects not sleeping and, you know, architects being paid terribly and, you know, architect driving a crappy car and living in a house that's unfinished and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, in the words of um, Gandhi, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. You know, like if you believe that something's not right, work towards doing a little bit better. And I, uh, again, I don't, don't liken myself to Gandhi. Um, but I do like the metaphor. You can quote um, Gandhi. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, what, what, what I think, is, what, what I think is a disservice to architecture is to perpetuate the belief that we're victims because, um, you know, my, my wife's a psychologist and she hates when I quote her. But um, the the thing is, is victims often become a circle of violence or a circle of poor treatment and stuff because of a whole very, lot of very bad things that happen to them and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, obviously, that doesn't diminish the pain and suffering that real victims are going through. But in, in the same way that the longer we either behave or consider ourselves to be victims in the industry, the longer we will remain victims in the industry. So we've either got to change the conditions or the um, the, the, the precursors that get us to the point that we believe that or think that, and then we've got to collectively as an industry work together. And, and unfortunately, the architectural industry loves white-anting each other, you know, loves talking down another architect for another reason, you know, undercutting fees because, you know, somebody else, like I'll do it for half the price, you know, and, and that's just a race to the bottom. You know, it undermines everybody. I mean, I'm proud of the fact that I'm very collegiate with a lot of the guys in the same airspace as me, both in Brisbane and in, in Sydney, I mean, guys like Bruce Stafford in Sydney, who's arguably one of the top, um, you know, high-end house architects in eastern suburbs, Sean Carter, Carter Williamson, who equally, you know, has done some of the most extraordinary work in the country. These guys are colleagues of mine. When we were working in Sydney, they, they called me up and said, you know, come and share our office space, you know, come work with us, you know, can we help you in any way, you know. They're collegiate, they're collaborative. We talk about fee structures. We talk about how we can do our jobs better. We learn from each other. And we stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, we're better and stronger and more empowered because we're collaborating, we're learning instead of trying to undercut each other. And, uh, you know, I think that the industry, you know, if we worked more towards selling the, the, the story positively and confidently about the value that we add and get away from the sort of victim mentality, I think the better off we'll all be. You know, there's no reason why we can't, you know, drive decent cars, live in decent homes, send our kids to decent schools and still be great architects. You know, there's this sort of, there's this long held belief that if you economically or commercially successful as an architect, that you must be a bad architect. You must have sold out, you know, and um, I, I think that is just grossly, grossly 
um, mm. incorrect. I think it's small-minded, you know, at the risk of being provocative um, because there's, there is plenty of evidence of incredibly accomplished architects that have been able to marry the commercial realities of, you know, yep. living a life, running a business and doing great work. Yeah. There is, a, I think, like even the practices that are financially successful where it's impossible to really know, you know, how are the owners doing, uh, how are the directors doing financially from the practice, but they'll try to not not show any yeah, kind of yeah. evidence of that right or, mm. or, or kind of kind of understate it or downplay it a little bit because I think there is obviously that negative impression to success and commercial success in the industry that that mm. that makes you less of an architect if you're you know if you're financially successful and you've got a good car and all that sort of stuff that you're talking about right but in the real world <laughs> that's yeah. not how it works at all right yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I mean I, I, I think um What's certainly interesting, um, you know, on on that front is I think you're correct. Is you know that there has been also the sort of long held belief, and I mean I've had it said to me, you know, recognizing me doing this for 32 years, and you know anybody that's you know followed me on Instagram or Facebook will know I love my cars and it's a you know profound passion of mine. And uh, what is really interesting is is that I was so mindful, so terrified that. You know, eight years ago, I'd go buy myself a nice car and you would get this, oh, you, you must be paid too much because you're driving a nice car. But somehow does, no one holds, holds, a, holds that against a real estate agent or a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, a guy running an IT firm. Or I mean, if I went to my lawyer and, and he was driving a beaten up old car, I mean, I, I'd be pretty nervous actually about engaging. I'd actually, want, <laughs> I'd actually want to see him driving a nice car, but maybe that's just me. It's so true. But, but so, somehow, you know, in architecture, there's this idea that, if, if they're doing okay, that they must have sold out or, you know, they must be charging too much. And thankfully, you know, when, when I, just going back to when, when I bought my first kind of, you know, toy car, Supercar. I call it that, about seven or eight years ago, I actually, I was so terrified about this. I went to, I'm going to say it was about three or four clients of mine at the time, one that I knew quite well, one that I barely knew at all, and two that were sort of somewhere in the middle. And I said to them, what would, you, just out of interest, what would you have thought if I had pitched up, you know, driving a Porsche or whatever it was. And every single one of them went, well, to be honest, we were actually disappointed that you didn't, you know, and these are very different people, you know, I mean, they might have used different words. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's reassuring. And I said, well, why is that? And I said, well, you, you know, you are in the business of aspirational living, you know, like these houses are filled with beautiful cars, art, um, you know, fashion, people traveled the world, they're worldly people. Why Would you not want the person that is curating vessel that contains all of these aspirational things to understand aspirational things? And I, I've never thought about it like that before. I was just apologizing about the fact that, um, and it's, it's worth saying, by the way, the first Porsche bought was about half the price of a Land Cruiser. But again, this is the funny thing about perception. If the I brand, pitched up it's in a, the brand. Yeah, if yeah, I, yeah, exactly. So if I pitched up in a Land Cruiser, no one would have said anything. But you pitch up in a, you know, ten-year-old Porsche or something, and people think you, you know, you're a millionaire. So again, yeah. it sort of goes to this whole kind of weird perception sort of idea. But 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 then I actually sort of found, you know, that the, that more is the case that we've, you you would meet like-minded people that would share your enthusiasm or passion about it. And again, be it art, you know, watches or art or whatever and what has been our story and this is like a beautifully serendipitous and also amazingly authentic airspace to be in is is that 
almost without exception, and maybe the ones that don't think this don't tell me, but almost without exception, every client of ours is interested in these things. And they love the fact that I'm interested in them as well, that I actually understand them. And as a byproduct, and this was never intended to be a byproduct, but it is now, is that um, certainly as far as cars are concerned, you know, a lot of the car enthusiasts in Brisbane um, come to us because they go, look, this is somebody that we feel we can trust. Now, I'm not saying they can't trust a person that is not a car person. Clearly, that's just not correct. But what I'm saying is that in the game and in the, the, the game and the endeavor of winning people's trust, um, the, the, if you share interests and passions and stuff, it's a really wonderful place to start off the nature of these sort of discussions because you just start from a much higher base where you kind of have shared interests and people sort of get a sense of who you are, which I think is a wonderful story. But again, it's something that's often seen as something that needs to be suppressed or God forbid, not spoken about at all. Yeah. I mean, and part of what I find fascinating about this is that I talk to a lot of uh, residential architects that are working at the highest end. uh, And a lot of my other clients are asking me, you know, Dave, how do we kind of work on projects or houses at, at that at that end of the scale and the ones the ones that are, are oftentimes you know they they are the the wine collector the art collector the car collector mm. and they share that passion with their clients and, and and all it might take would be just you know visiting a particular winery and posting themselves having a particular bottle on instagram just one off and all of a sudden it's 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 potential clients coming out of the yeah. woodwork. These yeah. uh, these wine aficionados going, oh, absolutely beautiful bottle. Uh, when when are we going to catch <laughs> up and have one? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, a new project is under discussion. Yeah, and yeah. um, it's it, for me, you know, taking this out bigger picture to mm. to the to the architects listening who who might not be the car people or the wine people or the watch people. You know, that might mm. not be their bag. But but I guess what the bigger the bigger thing here is about or oh, one. One thing is about, you know, talking about that type of client, there is a tendency for them to have those kinds of interests, that that aspirational client architecture being residential architecture being an aspirational thing. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. But on the other hand, there's this other thing there, which is about you putting your personal interests and things that you're into out there and then creating this trust and relatability with people that share similar interests that are into similar things. So it might not be cars or sailing or whatever, but... But it's, but it's maybe more this idea of don't really want to think personal brand but personal mm. authenticity, right? And and maybe this other challenge, which is that you're building a residential practice. Residential is an inherently kind of personal relationship between a client and, a, and an architect. Yeah. But then the challenges that come with that as a practice grows, and I'm sure that's something that you kind of potentially think about sometimes. It's like to what extent am I seen as kind of the face of the brand? Do people think you know, they're kind of working with me or are they kind of working with a bigger team, a company? What does that yeah. do for how we kind of position ourselves in their mind? Just, is there anything in there that kind of jumps out at you as something that's kind of... Yeah, no, look, I, I mean, I, th- I think um, I'm glad you used the word authenticity because I think, you know, for any, for any of this to be um, sustainable and stuff like that, I think it's about people um, ultimately just... I mean, I'm quite happy to share elements of my my life where I think it's it's perhaps interesting um, or relevant in how it overlaps with architecture and stuff because 
well, for, for one thing, when I set up my Instagram page, if we, if I can be as basic as that, yeah. again, I didn't set that up as a company page. It is just my, my journey. So that's, yeah, that's true, my, isn't my, it? There my, is my no, child's birthday. Yeah. There is no Sean Lockyer Architects page, is there? There's just Sean Lockyer, the, the Instagram. No, we're, 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 well, interestingly, we sort of, you know, actually probably in the process of actually setting that up now because the okay. practice is of a size that at times there's probably more personal stuff that I want to share that I kind of probably don't because, you know, I'm sort of navigate a line. It's holding you back a little bit. On, yeah. On there. yeah. But, 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 it, but um, I kind of, you know, what, it, what has been important for me in my own journey is to kind of be able to just be open and honest with the things that I'm passionate about, you know, and, and for me, you know, at the, at the, at the risk of, you know, more personal stuff, my, my, my interest in, in cars and, and you, you get some of, you know the, the the worst of humanity. They're interested in cars and things like that, um, with all the wrong reasons and st- But you know, for for me, both my father and my brother, who's deceased, um, you know, were both car tragics. You know, so from a young, young, young age, it was always something that I was deadly passionate about. as a shared interest with you know two of the closest people in my life. And then my, one of my very, very first clients in South Africa, who I went on to sort of work, do three generations of their families' homes in you know, over a couple of different projects, was also a mad car tragic. And, you know, he was one of the first people that really took me under his wing as a young architect. And um, and then, he, you know, he very tragically passed away. And so through a whole lot of quite sad, um, incredibly important but tragic passings mm. of people that were very close to me, this is something that's authentic to me, you know, in the same way that art um, for a whole lot of, you know, re- reasons is and stuff. And I think... Because it's something that I'm passionate about, that's ultimately what I hope people will get about me and ultimately our practice is that that passion, uh, whether it's cars, whether it's wedding cakes, whether it's a stamp collection, whether it's your interest in, you know, bush walking and whatever it is, it it doesn't have to be something of a magnitude that involves, you know, money or resources. I think it's about communicating what you're passionate about and doing that authentically and Hopefully, in the act of doing that, you attract the people with shared values and interests. Ultimately, you know, that's what I'm trying to strive for is to kind of, you know, live as close to my values as I possibly can. Um, you know, I've, I've met some extraordinary people. I've, I've become very, very good friends with um, a very substantial bulk of our clients, and, and I'm on very good terms with the rest of them. And, and for me, ultimately, you know, that's the, the best reward I could ever get from this process. If you said to me, if you offered me the choice of happy clients or every single architecture reward that exists on the planet, I would take a happy client over it every single day. And I mean, while we've been lucky enough to win a handful of awards and things yeah. like that, it's not a measure of my success. I don't, I mean, we, we have it up on our website because it's, it's interesting to some people. And don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for every single award we've ever won. I'm thrilled, yeah. I'm ecstatic, you know, I'll run home jumping for joy as much as anybody else, but it's not a measure of our success in any way, shape or form. You know, what, what is a much more meaningful measure of our success is, you know, we've had and continue to have really wonderful relationships with people in the media, the real estate world, um, you know, car world, art world, a whole lot of things that um, resonate, what, that we resonate with and, you know, that they resonate with us and establishing those values where, you know, you feel like you're people that want to collaborate and do stuff together and that you enjoy working with each other for me is much more meaningful, you know, and, you know, they're, 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 um, you know, in the moment, in the um, opportunities where we get our work displayed in a local project and from a local project, I think has really done 
an extraordinary job in terms of the caliber of the magazine that he's produced. Um, you know, they've been enormously um, generous towards us and inclusive towards us and stuff in terms of our work. And, you know, that, that's been, that has been incredibly fulfilling and it's been incredibly valuable yep. to us. Um, you know, they've done it absolutely beautifully. So as I said, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm as grateful as anybody when that happens because it allows our story to get out there. But ultimately when a new client sits in front of us, we've got to establish a rapport that is unique to them that yep. doesn't rely on our brand, that doesn't rely on anything. It just relies on establishing a relationship that's meaningful and relevant to their project and their journey. Yeah, that's oh, interesting. Just quickly on the local project, I feel like that's a publication that must, it just really fits you guys like a glove, doesn't it, in terms of who it's who it's kind of catering to and the quality of the work there and the approach to the imagery and just the entire culture of that that platform and that magazine just feel like that hit really the sweet spot there oh, um, where there's yeah. like complete alignment in terms of, in terms of values and project type. And yeah, it's perfect. You, you guys are yeah. lucky that Aiden popped up on the scene. Hey, no, look, look I mean, he, he's absolutely 100% is, uh, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I, th I think look, there are obviously a number of phenomenal um, magazines, you know, a lot of them have been out longer um, than um, Aiden's outfit. And I mean, all of them are, Fantastic. I mean, there's a swath of um, phenomenal magazines. It's about once again just sort of going, who, who are my audience? You know, where, where do where do I put the most amount of energy? You know, to kind of throw the net in the, the most targeted fashion possible. You know, I mean, House and Garden um, has always been an incredible magazine for us to be in. I mean, you know, Kate Nixon, who was very involved there for um, a period and um, still is. You know, was was always a wonderful supporter of us. Is a wonderful supporter of us, and you know, I've always really enjoyed working with her. And again, we've always found really, really good traction with that. I mean, the Brisbane News. I was talking to Michelle Bailey, who was writing for the Brisbane News a while ago. And it's like a local newspaper, but it used to land in the letterboxes of the moms and dads and Ascot and you know, New Farm and Barton and Paddington and Red Hill, who were our target audience. You know, so I mean, you know, this is maybe the distinction between. Um, you know, ma magazines that may make you feel uh, certain things about your creative endeavors as an architect and your kind of journey as an academic. Um, and then the other magazines that will get you more traction from a point of view of, of winning over clients and work. And then there's a you know, mix of all of them and stuff. And again, I'm not saying anyone is better or worse. They're just different and they, they serve different purposes. So for us, it's been wonderful to kind of get alignment with a, a magazine that is of the highest quality that we're proud of, seeing our work and thrilled to see our work in every single time. And, um, you know, it, it's hopefully been a, a relationship that's been valuable to both of us. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I think like House and Garden's a really good example because, you know, I was looking at the the Roy Morgan stats or the, the circulation stats for that magazine the other, the other week and I was just absolutely blown away that they've got a readership of 650,000 ordinary Massive. readership. Massive. Compa yeah. Compare that to the circulation of, you know, I bloody love Houses magazine, but I think last time I looked, their circulation was sort of low, sort of 10, 11, 12,000 sort of circulation on that publication. So we're just talking like in terms of scale and marketing word, but penetration into society, into the media. Mm. I mean, it's just... It's worlds apart. Of course, different different target audience sort of diff looking for a different sort of thing slightly, but the local project, another sort of phenomenally massive, just absolutely um, just 
got grown out of all pro- possible proportions anyone would have imagined in terms of high-end architecture that yeah. previously in well, Australia uh, there yeah. wasn't really a publication that kind of got that level of scale. Um, no, and, and, yeah. and look, look again, I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we, we were lucky enough to be published in Houses magazine a number of times and it's a wonderful Love magazine. It. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's an absolutely brilliant magazine. Vogue, I think small, brilliant. But, small you know, but influential. Yeah, very you know, influential. Australia, you know, yep. brilliant. I mean, all of these are absolutely brilliant. Um, I mean, in, in terms of w- winning um, work, um, you know, it's about throwing the net out as wide as you possibly can. And I've often, um, you know, be, because we've enjoyed, um, you know, c- continued success, you know, commercially, and, you know, we've thankfully, you know, always had enough work, which has been an enormous privilege. Um, you know, as, as, you, as you look at your, your journey, you, you, you look at kind of where, where does the work come from? Where do I want to go? What does that work look like? And the thing is, is, you know, with the internet being what it is these days, digital media, like it eclipses hard copy to such an enormous degree. You know, I mean, it's the difference between, you know, a swarm of locusts, you know, and a single locust because it, it's, it's sort of, it, it just does things on a level that, that the, the individual thing just can't possibly do. Now, I mean, like it's a pretty negative uh, connotation, but in the case of media, you know, the thing is, is if you get traction, things propagate at a level that is just exponential. So one of the areas where, you know, we've just been very pragmatic is of course we want hard copy. Uh, of course, you know, my, my ego likes the strokes as much as anybody else. I love to get in a book. You know, we have been in a number of books over the years, but to be honest, it's not something we push heavily. The, the local project we, um, you know, we, we proudly and, you know, excitedly, you know, offer them our new work to see whether we'd like to get it in print. And we used to kind of feel if we'd only put made digital representation that it felt like second prize, but we've actually found that that's not the case at all. You know, the, dig, the digital representation commercially is actually a better outcome. And um, where we're privileged and lucky enough to get a video online, I mean, the take-up is just enormous. I mean, the Witter Circle video, I think, is at 1.4 million views. Um, you know, we, we, we're doing work uh, nationally, and, and now we're looking at doing work internationally on the basis of that video having propagated internationally. I mean, if that is a hard copy sitting on a shelf, the local radial supermarket, um, we wouldn't be talking to clients in Munich like we're doing at the moment. We wouldn't be talking to um, you know, clients in Fiji and places all over the world. You know? So even though those jobs haven't yet eventuated, the fact that these people are even calling us is a function of the fact that these things are happening outside of our borders in digital format. Is that something that you picked up? You, know, you mentioned earlier, and I'm fortunate I wasn't familiar with the practice that you had worked at previously that had done projects in sort of 75 different countries. Um, I'll, I'll have, keen to have a look at yeah. it though because it sounds amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, just such a prolific. Porn, I can tell you, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, seriously, I, I think once I see the stuff, once I, it'll ring a bell, and I'll, I'll recognize it once I have a look at it. There's, there's a lesson there, isn't there, about you know not focusing in too narrowly and not getting caught in this idea that you have to be so niche and so targeted, but going you know mass kind of awareness and traction out there globally in across the media, across these large platforms like the local project YouTube channel and House and Garden, like that. That has a that quantity has a quality in and of itself, right? It's so important, isn't it? That there's a sort of uh, a broad spectrum, sort of getting the projects out there everywhere, right? Because I yeah. think sometimes people go, "No, we don't want to do that. We want to be really, really, really targeted." But 
but but the reality is, I think I think being out there and being broadly out there is just really key, isn't it? When we're talking about something as niche as architecture. Yeah, well, I mean, we we certainly um, we're targeted in terms of the the type of relationships and ingredients of a project. Um, you know, you know, we, we if something's not a good fit for us, we we don't you know we wouldn't take it on if we don't feel like we're the right guys to do it. We wouldn't take it on if if a client's um, values didn't. Um, marry with ours in a way that we felt we could do the right outcome. You know, we wouldn't take the commission, irrespective of the fees or the size of the job. So, you know, we're, we're pretty focused um, about what we want. But I think one of the things that I have learned organically, and I, I think this is very, very true, is the wider you can um, sort of throw the proverbial net, you know, the more traction you can get with people being interested in what you do, the, hopefully the the broader the base is of inquiry that you'll have into the practice. And ultimately, we can only be as busy as the projects that we can serve. But um, I, 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 I can certainly tell you from a firsthand experience, if, if I am having a conversation with a client where um, I've run out of work and I'm desperate for work, how I convey myself to them not in terms of the facts, but in terms of the sentiments of things, is very different to when we're in a comfortable place where we don't need the work. Now, that, that's not about ego or anything like that. That's simply about the fact that when one doesn't need the work is when it is the best time to communicate your story because anybody believing or anybody seeing that you don't need to tell them what they want to hear, that you're telling them what you believe to be the fundamental truth to your, your experience of the process, um, will generally get a lot more traction, you know. So the, the, the attitude I've always had is that, um, you know, people are sometimes surprised that we'll go out and meet new clients where they know that we're busy and we go, well, of course we'll go meet new clients. I mean, we're first of all very grateful for any inquiry, but then equally the best time to talk to a client about the potential of working together is when you don't need the work because you're going to be your most confident, your most relaxed, your most um, kind of, um, I suppose, at ease about the whole Process, you know, I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm at risk of often making slightly inappropriate kind of metaphors and stuff, which the office regularly remind me about. But it's a little bit like, um, you know, when you're at university and you're looking for your first date to go to the university yeah. ball. Or I whatever. knew this was coming. <laughs> and you know, the thing is, is you know, if, if you're a yep. single guy and you know, wait until the nth hour, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like or what you have to offer. You know, no one wants to know about it. You know, whereas all of a sudden, if somehow, if Three people have asked you out, um, you know, on a date. All of a sudden, you become the most attractive person in the world, and you can be the exact same person. And 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 again, as as you know, kind of banal as that might seem, or you know, kind of a reach that that might seem like a, an a, an idea. Well, the evidence is there. You know, why why is it that a secondhand Rolex is twice the price of a firsthand one? Because you can't get it. So the, the ultimately what, um, and again, I'm not, let me categorically say we're a long way from being there, but aspirationally, I love the idea and I draw a lot of parallels with the Rolex and Porsche have been around a long time doing the same thing. If you look at a 25-year-old um, Submariner, or if you look at a brand new Submariner, you need to be an expert to know the difference. And I love the fact that it has remained relevant for 25 years and the one that's 25 years old is worth more than the one that's brand new. Um, and that's because they've just gone, we're setting the bar, we're unmovable in the quality that we do, we're unmovable in how much of it we do, 
and we will create a demand way in excess of anything that we can actually physically deliver on, and that will sustain our value, it will sustain our relevance, it will it will make us attractive and stuff. And again, I I make no apologies about loving that sort of value system, you know, because I mean, ultimately, what we want to do is demonstrate our value and hopefully be attractive for people to work with. And um, I'm not consciously going out of my way to kind of not be able to do work that we win. We 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 just going about it as hard as we can to have projects that we can do and love. And the more we can offer value and be relevant and sort of make this noise out there, I think the better the chances that that will continue to be the case. Yeah, exactly. And it makes sense that you're um, you know you're, you're you're out there promoting your work and investing in the in the kind of the uh, the brand awareness around your studio in excess of what you actually practically need because that's what Porsche does and that's what Rolex does. They need 98% of the planet to recognize what a Rolex is for the 0.0001% to, 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 to value it and to be able to make that microscopic audience big enough that a company can be a multi-billion dollar company uh, off the back of just selling to this extremely niche group. So, you know, architecture is a really, really niche group but from a brand and desirability standpoint, it doesn't make sense if you were to only try and be known by that extremely narrow slice of the market. You kind of, of need to, you know, need to need to kind of put it out there. And um, yeah, no, it's really really interesting. Sean, I reckon, I mean, we could probably chat all day, but I think we've got to finish up. <laughs> there was probably so many different things we could have talked about that we didn't get to, but I just appreciate, I think it's just fascinating hearing you sort of talk about your sort of insights and philosophy on this stuff and could just listen to you talk all afternoon about it. Thank you so much for not being afraid to talk about some awkward, delicate topics with me to share your, your honest point of view about it. And I think, I, think the, I think the listeners will really appreciate it as well. No, Dave, Dave, look, thank you very much as well, Matt. And I, I think um, I, I, I really hope that people listening to me don't sort of feel like I'm sort of up myself or, you know, sort of trying to talk up us as being any better than anybody else. That's not where I'm coming from at all. You know, I, I have my very real struggles and our journey, you know, involves a lot of sweat, blood and tears, sacrifices, amazing clients, amazing opportunities, serendipity. You know, these things are an alchemy of so many different things for it to work. And um, we're all learning, you know. And But, but I, I think certainly from my perspective and what I've also enjoyed about this chat is to just talk about some of these things that maybe do come across as a little bit more gooey. Like talking about money and success of any level, you know, it's kind of a little bit gritty, you know, it's a mm. little bit. And I, I hope people sort of see where I'm coming from with this regard that um, this is not about me trying to make myself the wealthiest man on earth. This is really about sort of trying to do things in such a way that are authentic that ultimately yield the outcomes for your life in a way that's authentic, meaningful and relevant to your life. No, definitely. And I'll make sure to also mention that in the intro. <laughs> <laughs> that way they'll know from the, and, from and, the and outset. Yeah. <laughs> book, we'll bookend it with, uh, with an explanation of the why, you know? Yeah, please do. I don't, I don't need any haters. I've probably got enough already. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Um, I get my fair share too. So it's all good. So thank you, thank you so much, Sean. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, very much appreciate Thanks, Dave. Cheers, man. That was my conversation with Sean Lockyer from Sean Lockyer Architects. If you'd like to learn more about Sean Lockyer Architects, you can visit lockyerarchitects.com.au or follow them on Instagram at Sean Lockyer. 
This episode was sponsored by Office Dave Sharp, a practice providing specialized consultancy, marketing, and strategy tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or email info at officedavesharp.com if you'd like to get in touch to discuss your practice. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. 